So if you're going to lend to somebody in Timbuktu, you don't even know the name of the little town. There's only a population of 500. What are your chances of that property being able to be sold easily? Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey everybody, it is Sarah Larby. Welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? As I am recording this intro, it is beautiful outside. It is a nice summer day and I am up at the cottage just uh, taking a week off, enjoying the sun and really just enjoying life. And uh, I just recently had a bunch of investor friends up to the cottage and we've recorded a few videos as well, which uh, were definitely a lot of fun. And of course, there was uh, lots of wine and food, but I love these long weekends. However, you know, one of the things that I do is I record a lot of these episodes quite in advance just so that I have enough and then my virtual assistant as well can edit them and get them prepared. But then I try to save the intros for when it's a little bit more relevant so I can give you guys an update on what's going on. So basically the latest I guess would be the the triplex that I'm converting. Well, it's actually a single family that I'm converting into a four unit. That's what I'm working on right now. And I'm actually looking to loan out my RSP money as well. So I'm looking at some different options and working with my mortgage broker on that. And other than that, just wanting to take the summer and, and, and really relax and get ready and ramped up for new Burr course that I'm putting together for September. And it's going to be very interactive. It's going to be a mix of classroom, of Zoom, and actually in the field. It's going to be a great, great course. If you guys are interested, feel free to send me an email. But I thought I would share what I do, and that is the Burr model. So we'll be buying a property, renovating it, renting it out, refinancing, and most importantly, repeating to pull out your money. So that is coming soon, guys, and it is going to be available for those that are in Ontario because there are going to be some in-person meetings as well as in-field work. So looking forward to starting that. And today's guest is Susan Flanagan. So I've known Susan. She comes to the Right Club very, very often. She is a huge supporter of our club as well as a sponsor. And she actually now works with my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom. And what she does is really quite interesting. She does private money for mortgages. So if you have an RSP and you want to loan it out or you are in the other opposite realm and you want to borrow money, RSP money, she is the person that we go to at the Right Club and a lot of investors go to to work through her and either borrow money or provide an RSP loan because a lot of the time the financial advisors will not tell you that you could actually do something real estate related with your RSP or your tax-free savings account. They just want their commission, so they'll tell you to buy their mutual fund, which has a huge commission fee, especially in Canada. Like we're paying some of the highest commission fees, I think, in the world. 3% MER fees is definitely not uncommon. So if you think about it, if you go to the bank and you decide that you want to invest your money and then you look at past returns for whatever fund, mutual fund you pick, let's just say it's 6%, for example. Here's the problem with that. The problem is, 
that is usually before fees. So then if you subtract the fees and you're you know, paying a 3% MER fee, management expense ratio fee, on top of that for somebody to manage the fund, well, all of a sudden your 6% becomes 3%, but wait, <laughs> there's also inflation. So the inflation, let's just call it two to 3% a year, could actually wipe out any type of return. So for me, I uh, had an RSP because my company matched it, and that really is the, the main reason for me that I put money into the RSPs to get obviously the free money in the match. But then what happens is as soon as you can pull it out for whatever reason, don't pull it out in cash, but you can you can move it from whatever mutual fund it was invested in, etc. You can actually move it to either Olympia Trust or Community Trust. I think there's another one as well. And you can loan it out and you can choose what return you want. And right now we're seeing anywhere between eight to 12% on second mortgages. So really, really interesting because at the end of the day, there are no fees, <laughs> which is great. You're not paying 3% management expense fee. And a lot of the time, if you're loaning it out, whoever's borrowing it will pay all of the legal fees and all that good stuff. So I think for me personally, I mean, you guys are definitely do all of your due diligence and look into it on your own. But for me, I believe in loaning it out as uh, 10% or 12% rather than just trying to play the market. And I, ha I feel like I have just so much more control over doing something like this. So Susan is really, really well versed in that kind of stuff. So if you guys have any questions about that, feel free to reach out to her and uh, let's get on with the podcast. Hey, Susan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So we've known each other from the Right Club for about a year because you sponsor our events. And I'm so excited to have you on the show to really understand and, and get to know you better today. So thank you so much for being on the show. So my first question is, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's see. To start with, I mean, I've been investing in real estate for more than 25 years in many different facets. And I actually, my background though, I'm an emergency nurse. And yeah. I did, yeah, I was, I mean, I'm retired from that now, but I was doing real estate investing alongside my nursing career. And I did that for many years and bit by bit, it allowed me to back away from my career. So that was bonus. I landed, I started investing by accident actually. I had an opportunity to buy a, a condo in Canmore many years ago when the interest rates were like ridiculous, like 18.5%. All I could think of at the time was, well, if I can rent it out so that I can travel, then I'd be interested in buying. I mean, my motivation was different than, than how many people start today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one was a condo. Okay, so, so that was 25 years ago, roughly? Actually, more than that, but yeah, the, okay. it was in the 80s. When, okay. when the uh, housing market was in dire straits with the economy, and that's why the interest rates were as high as they were. It's funny because once I realized, oh my gosh, I can do better by renting out this condo, me living elsewhere, and then learning all the tax benefits. It's, it just started the ball rolling of me being hungry for more information. And that's, that led me to wanting to carry on further. Okay, so that's great. So, so that was your first property. And how long after did you get your second one? Actually, within a year or two, I ended up with a side by side duplex in Canmore, then I built a house, 
then I was in Calgary. And then actually from there, I mean, with still with my nursing career, I was living in California working, but renting out everything. So I was learning bit by bit that the value of having your real estate work for you, but you didn't have to be present. But I had nobody to learn from. This is the thing that I, I love to say to new people coming in. It's like, are you crazy for, you'd be crazy to not want to get around everybody else, what they're doing, learn from other people, learn on the podcasts, come to events like the Right Club, read the books. Like it, there's, there's so much information out there. There's no excuse for people not to know what to do. I just kind of learned by fire. <laughs> <laughs> you made the mistakes and learned from there. Yeah, I mean, I was not very creative in the beginning. It was just buy a property. Well, I did the buy and hold, like what you're doing. It's the safest way, I think, to go in the long term that just let the tenants pay down the mortgage. You're making cash flow. And I wasn't even thinking of appreciation at the time. I did not recognize what happens in real estate because I was not educated in any of it. And it was actually when I sold my first property, was about 207 and that was when the big boom was happening out west that's when everything was falling apart in the states i just moved back from california so it was like it was just by surprise that i find out all this so yeah so that's interesting so let's fast forward to today what does your portfolio look like well actually so from there i started building it more and more once i moved back to ontario here my very i was on a mission then to build it i had two student rentals i had a couple of uh, duplexes i also was doing flips so i've had over if i actually look at my portfolio over the the length of my investing career i've had about 25 properties but right now oh so sorry to fast forward around 2010 i started then lending out my own money for mortgages and it only started with rsps but i was still building my portfolio so now fast forwarding i have in the last three four years purposely been selling off my my different rentals just because i'm i'm not interested in being the landlord that I was before, but I still buy properties usually to flip them. And then the money I have, I invest into mortgages. Okay. So that, that's a really unique way of looking at it. A lot of people think real estate is, you know, potentially brick and mortar, but there's just a lot of different avenues. And, and this, this in a way has become your business. Is, it has. Uh, is, is, and it's funny is it because I did not purposely plan to become a mortgage professional. It just, I ended up doing it because I was initially lending out my own money then. And at first I couldn't find people to lend it to. I mean, it was, I was advertising to anybody letting them know I have private money. If you want to need money for a second mortgage or whatever. And then bit by bit, the floodgates open more and more people were calling me and then I didn't have enough funds. So then I was connecting people. Let's say you had money and I was connecting you to John Doe saying, oh, well, call Sarah. She's got some RSP money. And that's fine and dandy. But then it was a mortgage broker who brought it to my attention that, Sue, you must be careful now. You are now brokering and right. you must be licensed to do that. And I went, whoa, like, really? Because I wasn't taking money for it, but just for the legal aspects and the legality of what you're doing. So that's what led me to get my license. And since then, I mean, I just... I love it. And I love connecting borrowers and lenders on a regular basis. 
That's really interesting. So, I mean, obviously, as as investors, we probably have potentially some money in RSPs or tax-free savings accounts that we don't really know exactly what to do with it, right? And so, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, if somebody has whether they're investing in brick and mortar or not, let's just say they have some money in RSPs and they're not really happy with their returns or having in whatever mutual fund they've got it into. What are their other options that most banks and most others don't tell them about? Well, that's exactly why I'm on this mission to want to educate people. Um, Because let's face it, if you are trying to build your portfolio, you don't want to touch the money you have available to you for private lending. You just want to use that for your portfolio, which is warranted. And that's what I did for a long time. But thinking about RSPs and especially TFSA as well, if somebody did have cash that they want to be using, they're better off to put it in TFSAs because that's money that they'll never get taxed on. They've already been taxed on and that money is tax-free now. So what they can be doing, and I mean, it's, it's a long drawn out to explain from scratch, but bottom line, they can be putting it into a self-directed fund and then lending it for mortgages to other people. But I honestly recommend to people in the beginning, if they've never done it before, they really should lean on someone who's done it, learn from them. And, and when I say learn from them, don't do it the way I did. I was learning from the person I was lending to. <laughs> and that's what you're laughing. But you know what? That's what a lot of people are doing out there right now. They don't even recognize that they could be putting themselves into a potentially dangerous situation because they don't know what they don't know. And touch wood, I never had a problem with the money I lent prior to gaining more knowledge. But I put myself in some pretty scary positions without even recognizing it. Like for instance, lending to somebody 95% loan to value. That's craziness. Like you have no protection if anything goes wrong. And then I hear people say things like, oh, that's okay. I trust that person. It has nothing to do with trusting the person. It's Mm -hmm. what would happen if the property all of a sudden they couldn't pay. Things like that. So there's a lot to it, but it's a very, I think the best vehicle out there, if we're going to compare it to mutual funds, to stocks, to especially GICs, I mean, things like that, it's ridiculous. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very safe money if you put it in the proper situations. Where should I invest with your host, Sarah Larvey? We'll be right back. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself, and she's works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with 
dealing directly with the bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis. It was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com. And then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. Back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Yeah, so I do want to, so I want to cover that in a little bit more detail. So let's just say, for example, somebody's got I don't know, 100,000 or 200,000. So they essentially would go to, I don't know all three, but there's Olympia Trust, there's Community yeah. Trust, and then I, I can't remember the third one. I think it's out Canadian West. Canadian Western Trust is, Canadian those Western. are the three common ones. Okay, so those are all companies that will take the RSP or the tax-free savings account money and through a bunch of paperwork, and you can explain maybe some of yeah. that because I don't know it fully, but through a bunch of paperwork, then you can decide what rates you're going to loan it out to and to who and then they kind of help with that transaction. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, so I think what people have to recognize, first off, understanding the term, when people say, oh, I have an RSP, all that means is they have money that's registered. Because I say to them, well, what's it in? They go, what's in an RSP? Okay, it's not, it's, so it's either, so it's now all of a sudden they're gonna take it out of a mutual fund. I say to them, do not take it out. It's going to get moved laterally over to a trust company that only does self-directed RSPs for mortgages. It's a very specific area. There's other areas they can invest in as well, self-directed. So there is a bit of a learning curve there. Now, anybody's more than welcome. I personally have been using Olympia Trust for over 12 years. I've also have my money with uh, Canadian Western Trust, or I do right now. I've never used Community Trust, so I can't speak about them. But it'll boil down to that that they can get some information from them. As far as the paperwork, what I do when people want to start lending money through me, I help them with it. I set them up with it because I remember how painful it was and not knowing what to do. Back when I did it, TD was involved in it, the TD bank, and nobody knew what they were doing to be able to help you. And because I was so determined, I kept going. But a lot of people would probably go, oh, forget it. This is too much work. Right. But Olympia Trust, and I'm using them as a great example, they have a great portal that you can learn from it and you can get on the phone. You end up having your own mortgage specialist that deals with you specifically. If you have RSP money, that's one account. If you have TFSA money, that's another account. There's also RIF. Uh, People don't even think about that. These are for people that are already 70 years old and older that they can still invest. 
even though they have to start drawing from their RSP money. People can also be investing their kids' education fund, a RESP, our ESP, Lira, which is money that they would have gotten from a pension, from a job, and it's still in an RSP. All of the registered funds can be used towards mortgages. Okay. So that's really interesting. So let's just say now the money is sitting in a, an Olympia trust account or community trust, et cetera. So what is the next step? So of course the easy part is if you know somebody and you're lending it to that person arm's length, of course, but like, what if this person may not know what to do with that money, but they want to earn, they want to ask to earn 10 to 15%. Like what would they need to do or look at? Well, this is why I, I'll be honest, unless they've done it a bunch of times on their own, I wouldn't suggest they start that way because there's too many questions they should be asking and they may not be. So I'll give you a, a few key ones that if somebody is going to venture out on their own and it, you know where, where it boils down to, it's fellow investors helping each other. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But, you, but for the person lending, make sure you're comfortable what you're doing. So for instance, when I'm lending my money, I'm always, number one, I'm looking at the property, how marketable it is. I'm also, I'm conservative. I will not lend above 80% loan to value. I will now every once in a while, 85, but let's say 80. And what that means for anybody listening that they go, what's that all about? It means that if the house, let's say is worth a hundred thousand, I will only lend you 80,000 because if something went wrong, God forbid, which the chances are very limited by the way, but let's say something could happen that you don't, get paid, then you need money in there so that then the power of sale could be started. And that's for lawyer fees and also to pay a realtor and so that you can get your money out. But the higher loan to value that you will lend on, there's very little money in there in case something goes wrong. Right. So the marketability of the property, that is actually the most important thing. So if you're going to lend to somebody in Timbuktu, you don't even know the name of the little town. There's only a population of 500. What are your chances of that property being able to be sold easily if it needed to be compared to a property, say, in Oakville or Burlington or Peterborough, Toronto, whatever? The other things you want to look at, you're really not concerned about the person's credit score and how much money they make per se, except for the fact that you want, you still want to look at the credit report to see what kind of credit, not history, habits. That's the word I want. What kind of habits they have. And that credit score can tell you a lot about that. Again, though, if you don't know how to read them, you want somebody to read it for you, like to show you how to read it. And then as far as the person that you're going to lend the money to, as long as they have can show you where they're going to get the down payment, it could be they could be getting a second mortgage from another property for the down payment. I wouldn't care if I'm in first position, but you want to know that they have money for that. If they're going to do rentals, you, you want to know that they have money for that because once they buy the house, if they can't do the rentals, now all of a sudden they're stuck. And also the fact that they can service the loan. So if their payments to me are a thousand a month, I need to, it's like, prove to me that you can pay me that $1,000 a month. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, do you find that most people are doing it and lending it to other investors or families in need because they're going to? Well, actually, I mean, because I network with so many investors, that seems to be where most of my business comes from. However, having said that, I get calls from lots of other mortgage brokers that they have people that need 
say a second mortgage or first mortgage and private money, but they don't have the money to lend them. The other common scenario that happens is that somebody that has gotten themselves in trouble with their credit cards run up the works, they need a second mortgage for a short length of time so that in a year's time when they're going to go refinance, they can clean up their credit. They can clean up their credit score. They have time to to be in a better position to now go for a first mortgage to pay out. That's another very common scenario right now with people trying to be on top of their finances. Right. So you mentioned first mortgage and second mortgages, and there's a lot of listeners there that are listening right now and probably wondering what's what's a second mortgage? Like, what does that even mean? And so, you know, in the investor world, it's, it's quite common to talk with first and second mortgages, et cetera, but it's not always common, right? And yeah. And, In the day-to-day, second mortgages are not that common. So can you go through that a little bit? Okay. A first mortgage is is the more, is in, think of it as in in first position. So on your home, most people have a mortgage on their home. They went wherever they got it, was at the bank, doesn't matter who it was from. If that's the very first, that is in first position and it's the most secure one. Now, if all of a sudden they need more money, they can't just top up what they have unless they go back to the bank and get refinanced. So if they need money in the meantime, they go to other sources and many a times it is through private money. And now that becomes in second position, meaning if something went wrong and the house, the person couldn't pay, the first position would get paid first and the second position gets its money afterwards. Now, honestly, to me, second, second mortgages are not, I don't find them risky because I analyze them exactly the same way as a first mortgage. I will not lend on higher than 80% loan to value. So let's say a person has a first mortgage at 60%, I'll give them another 20% to bring it up to 80. Right. Yeah, well, that's a good way to do it for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm jumping over to another comment on this though. There are a lot of investors that would love it if you would lend them. They say, oh, I can get, I can get a, a loan from the bank, 65% loan to value. Can you get me the rest? It's like, right. oh, I'm not going to finance you 100% because now I'm at big risk. But some people do get 100% financing. Like I've, I've even done it where I was doing a, a flip and I was holding it and we had a lender lend 100%. But definitely it's riskier for sure. Yeah, I mean, and people that do it, that's fine. They're obviously there, they, because the, the worst case scenario is they have to be prepared that if that person doesn't pay, they have to take over the first mortgage, and then they can take over the property. Mm-hmm. So, if, so if that is comfortable to somebody, that's fine. Now, I think what people have to realize when I have investors come to me, because I'm licensed, I can't be lending 100%. Right, right. There's no way. But that's why I say, I mean, I'm doing one right now that it's, uh, I'm lending 75% loan to value on the first mortgage. And I, and the um, borrower is getting, has a second mortgage. Actually, he's done it this time from another property. And that's going to be his down payment. But he's also done it in the past where he went and had somebody else that would finance him and it ended up being 97% loan to value. He only put 3% in. That's fine. It didn't impact me as the first lender. But there's thing, that's why people need to just be comfortable what part they would lend on. 
Absolutely. And, and for people that are not too sure, I think working with somebody that's qualified, that's a professional that's done it, somebody like you, I would, I would recommend that. I think once they, they know how to do it, it's a lot easier, but just to, to work around all of the, all the paperwork even. Well, and, yeah. And especially what, now mind you, when it comes to the paperwork, people don't need to get all bent out of shape because you're basically working with your lawyer. Right. So once you've decided, I mean, I remember in the beginning, I didn't have a, a commitment letter or anything fancy what to do. It was just a verbal. And then I called my lawyer and said, how do we do this? And the lawyer put it together. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be complicated at all, but you just have to know all the things that you're, the possible risks. And, I, and I'm not sure if I finished up on that. I said, so the marketability of the property, the fact that if the person that you can prove that they can pay you, that they have money for the down payment, or that you know it's coming from somewhere for the down payment. I did have a question because there are, like you mentioned, there are risks. So let's just say worse comes to worse. Cause I think it's just important to know, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly hmm. Worse comes to worse. The market takes a downturn and all of a sudden things drop 10% or flip goes wrong or whatever happens. And there's just not enough money to, uh, to pay back. Here's the thing. The reality is it's not that you won't get your money back. It's you must be prepared that it might take time. And during that time, you may not be getting any payments. Okay, so let's just say that happened, that the market changed because we just saw it happen. And somebody's run into trouble. They, they're doing a flip and they run out of money. For somebody to literally lose the house, they're not going to let it go into foreclosure or in Ontario is what we use power of sale. But what they might do is go, I got to sell now. So they'll just sell and then you get your money. But from a lending perspective, if I'm lending my money, I just have to be prepared. If I'm using that money each month as cash flow to live on for my daily living, you better be careful because if by chance there was an interruption at one point where they couldn't pay for six months while they were selling the house, you'll still get your money in the end, but you just won't get it each month while you're waiting. Okay. And so I, I actually don't know this, but would the payments that are missed be added onto the... Yes. With a penalty. Like all the things. So what happens, and that's why it's good to have a really um, well-written commitment letter, because I'm going back to myself. In the beginning, oh my gosh, I was lending money to people and I didn't have any extra clauses in there that if they... Um, if I had an NSF check or if they missed a payment or, or there's other things you have to think about of a risk that the borrower has to have things like their income tax up to date. And people go, what's the big deal about that? It's like, because if all of a sudden CRA comes after them, they're going to come first before we will. Okay? Right. Uh, things like having to make sure that insurance is on the house that it's up to date. So you want to be as the lender that your name went on the insurance rider so that if they stop paying, all of a sudden you're getting the notice to say that they don't have insurance and you can go after them and go make sure, put some insurance back on the house. So there's the little, these are all risks that have to be thought about. Okay. All right. Any, anything else that we should think about risk or positive or anything else that we should um, know about lending? Well, or I mean, it's just, Getting more knowledge on it, it's a very simple concept, but there's a lot involved. So you don't want to just jump in without getting some knowledge. And I, I've spent a lot of time, and I don't mind doing it for people, even if they don't want to necessarily lend through me, 
if they wanted to call in and ask questions, I'm more than happy to help them do that. But you have to be aware that there are still risks involved. Absolutely. So Sue, we talked about obviously lending money, but if we were to look at it the other way around as an investor, there's a lot of investors out there that at some point they either run out of money or they need money. How do they go about finding money and finding those lenders? Good question, because I'm hearing a lot of people are going for joint venture partners, which is fine. But another strategy could be purchase the property. Well, okay, if you're a brand new investor and you have no money, you're going to need somebody to joint venture with. But if you're already out there and you've got some money that you could be using for your own down payment, but you can't get a mortgage anymore, you use private money, then you turn around and do your renovations, but you still want to hold the property. That's what I hear a lot of people want to do, the Burr method. That's when you turn around, bring in a joint venture partner for the refinance. A good example, you bought a place at 200000 you put fifty into it, but once it's done, it's worth, let's say, 500000 So you brought the joint venture partner in when it was worth the 500000 not when you purchased it. You keep all that equity that you just built up from the reno, the forced appreciation that you did. That's your profit. That's really interesting. So now, when you're bringing in the person to hold the mortgage is the benefit for them that they really don't have to worry about putting any money down and they're just literally holding the mortgage because the money's already in the deal? Yeah, that's one way of it. And also, like, there's a lot of people out there that have money that want to be joint venture partners, but they're hesitant about that person doing the renos. They're, They're squeamish about it because they're also looking at a property that they can't visualize what it's going to look like. Okay, so you're spending a lot of time having to convince them, I can do this, don't worry, trust me, it's going to look like this. Whereas if you went ahead and did all that, okay, then you approach somebody, this is what my product is, but you've already done your spreadsheet to show them what they'll cash flow, what they'll make at the end, you're just bringing a property that's already done. But you did the beginning part of it with private money and some of your own. And so what I, I was just talking at the right club last week with two young guys that were, their problem is they don't have any money right now. And so that's why I suggested to them, I said, guys, you got a couple of solutions. You either get out there and do some wholesaling so they get, you have some money, right. or you joint venture with somebody on the first one, first couple, but with the goal that you don't need to have a joint venture partner to pick up under market value properties and renovate them. You're giving away too much equity to somebody else that you could keep for yourself. Yeah, that's a really great insight. Like, I don't think many of us even think that way. We just say, well, if we're going to do a JV, let's do it from the start. And then all of a sudden, all of the big profit, the big dollars, you've split into two when you can borrow the money at 8%, et cetera. And then on the back end, you're now just bringing somebody in to hold the mortgage. I mean, that's genius. (laughs) Well, the thing is, though, too, and I mean, not all of them work. Right. That's why you have to crunch the numbers. Because honestly, I see, because that's why I personally, I've never done a joint venture partner with somebody. Well, that's not true. 
I did years ago, and I think that's why I'll never do it again. <laughs> and so I work out the numbers right from the start. Yes, private money is expensive, but you work it in and you figure it out and you go, okay, if I did, if I can still do this and this is what it's going to cost, then what I what can I do after I finish the reno? One I'll use, oh, Brantford, that's your area. You'll appreciate this one. There was one yeah. I did on Maitland a couple of years ago. I picked it up for 117000 It needed about, I ended up putting about 30000 into it. But of course, we were promoting, like, oh, it's going to need a ton of, ton of work. But it, it really didn't. I mean, it was more cosmetic than anything. I turned around. I was able to use private money because even though I got it for 117, these people were in bad shape, needed to move right away. It was worth about 150 right then and there. So I was able to get someone to hold the mortgage for the full purchase price. Mm. Okay, a private mortgage. And then I did the rentals and then I sold it for 250 in the end. Now I could have at that point once the rentals were done. So what's 117 at about 30? Uh, no, it wasn't 250 on that one. Sorry, it was 220. But still, it was good. I could have at that point then refinanced it if I could have or brought in a joint venture partner and got them to hold the mortgage. I mean, obviously, there's never like a one size fits all. But like, how would you say a typical split would look like at the end when you're bringing in somebody when you're refinancing? Is it like still 50-50 they hold the mortgage or is it like 20% because they're just holding the mortgage or? I don't know because I've never done it. But that's a good point right there what you're saying. Why would you give away 50? All they're doing is holding the mortgage. Right. So I guess what it boils down to, you work it backwards. Remember how Danielle said at, at the Right Club last weekend, that's what her program's going to be about? that people need to reverse engineer. So it's like, think at the end and go, okay, well, if I were an investor, what kind of return would suit me? And then figure out how you can give them that return without giving them the kitchen sink. They don't need it all. Right. I mean, if they're only holding a mortgage and you've already done the majority of the work, you put the tenant in, you're collecting the money, the cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. You're managing the property. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see because is it a, a cash flow split? Is it an equity split in five years? I mean, I guess there's so many ways that you can slice and it. And it'll depend on your lender. What they, what do they want out of it? Mm -hmm. I mean, this to me, the scenario that we're talking about right the second, I don't think is one that you find this joint venture partner to do with a real estate club. You find them through friends outside of real estate because their expectations of what they want on a good return is going to be different than people that are in the, you know, in, yeah. in the game <laughs> in the game and want to be part of it. Cause you're not looking, I, I wouldn't want somebody. It's like, no, I just want you to hold the mortgage. Right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's really great insight. I mean, it's a whole different way to look at it. So but I guess the point I, I, I want to encourage people to appreciate is do not be afraid of private money because the other reason, when somebody goes, well, what are the, what are the rates? They go, well, if it's a first mortgage, it could be anywhere from 8 to 10. If it's a second, say from 10 to 14, and then you've got fees connected, and they go, oh, that's terrible. But what they have to recognize is during the time they are paying that money, it's usually only four to six months. Right. And then they're out of it. Like it's a short-term 
that that they're using expensive money on a project. Yeah, absolutely. And it all gets calculated into the numbers when you're looking at buying something and you're adding all the reno holding costs, et cetera. You're looking at the ARV, the after repair value. I mean, it all is things that you factor into your, your budget for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, a, n- a number of investors constantly ask me, will you lend me on the ARV? And just for the sake of anybody listening, the after repair value. And the answer is absolutely not. Because that is over there. We don't know that it's going to become that. You're, you're lending money on what the property is valued right that minute. And that's why I do say to people, it's like if you truly can find a property under market value, you're picking it up 20% less, what I need to do an appraisal still on it. And if that appraisal, we could lend you on what the appraisal says. So if it's higher than what you purchased, bonus. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's really awesome. So anything else that uh, somebody that's looking to borrow money should know? Um, 519-803-1642. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that insight. Yeah. No, you're welcome. So the next part of this podcast is our lightning round question. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and every guest that comes on the show gets the exact same five questions. Are you ready? Okay. Yep. Okay, question number one. What is your favorite real estate investing book ever? I probably have to say the RRSP secret. Okay. Because that definitely changed my thinking way back before I started doing private lending. All right, great. Do you know who the author is by any chance? Uh, Greg Hasbrit. Okay. Okay. We'll yeah. add that. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, it just definitely, for anybody that's going, why would you want to lend your money on mortgages compared to being in the stock market or mutual funds? The book is a definite. You must read it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm converted. It, it makes sense. I mean, I'm not going to take out my RSP money because I, <laughs> I don't want the tax hit. So. No, no, don't you ever. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah, just so it's the- do it. Doing no. mortgages, yeah. But the next, yeah, the next best thing is to do that. So lend it out as mortgages. So, and there's a few things I'm working actually with my mortgage broker to, to get things set up actually in the next month. So I'm excited about what's to come. Question number two, your favorite podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? You know what? I am just becoming more into podcasts. So I will say favorite would be yours as well as Tahani's. She just also launched her yes. fire females in real estate Been listening to that as well as I will say the right club. How's that? All right. That's our new podcast. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm going to make it a habit now. Amazing. So question number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate investing? These days, well, I have a puppy, just a year old. So it seems to be everything I do would center around taking her places Okay. All right. Awesome. These days. Good, good. Yeah. I I love my going out for dinner and wine on the, on the deck in the summer and so forth, but yes. Wine on the deck. Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. Not right today. (laughs) (laughs) No. So number four, if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? I'd be purchasing properties under market value with somebody else's money, probably private money and having a joint venture partner and just bit by bit, build it back up again. Okay. All right. Great. And last question, number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Uh, I mean, I'm so focused on the private lending. That's, 
that's off to the side. As far as actual real estate investing, I would say if they're brand new, they need to spend some of it on getting some education and find somebody that they can partner with and get their first property. Okay. All right. Great. Perfect. So that was our lightning round of questions. So Sue, if somebody wanted to reach out and know more about you, where can they go? They can go um, to my website, which is privatemoneyformortgages.com. And they could call me at any time, 519-803-1642. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Okay. All by those handles of privatemoneyformortgages.com. Excellent. Yeah. And before we wrap up, any final last word of advice? Well, I know we spent most of the time talking to do with the private lending, so I'll kind of keep it on, on that thread. People that are thinking, hmm, I want to learn more about private lending, reach out. I'll, I'll show you what you need to do. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was great. I look forward to, to more podcasts. Yeah, so we got to have you on the right club one as well. <laughs> okay, I'll get, get better organized for that one. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away. And eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.